Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on, on With Respect is Maria Godavich. Maria is the author of her latest book is Dr. Dogs. She's written other dog, books about dogs, uh, but this one is about how dogs, our best friends, are becoming our best medicine. Now, that's a fascinating lead-in or subtitle, but we're going to be talking to Maria Godavich, our guest on With Respect. We'll be right back. So, Maria, how are you today? I'm doing great here in beautiful, sunny San Francisco. Uh, you need sun- some of your rain if it's still raining by the time your readers hear, your uh, listeners hear this. I'm afraid that we'll be, we'll be raining and snowing from now until uh, <laughs> next March, I guess, or maybe even after oh, you, that. Oh, dear. Send some our way. We can, right. we can definitely use the rain. All right. So, Maria, where are you from originally? Well, uh, I grew up for eight years in Queens, New York, in Flushing, to be exact. My father was also a writer, and um, he had the opportunity, we had the opportunity when I was eight, to move to rural Maine, to a beautiful old farmhouse on almost 200 acres, and uh, it was a big switch, but uh, the rest of my growing up years from eight to 18 were in Maine until I went to college in Chicago, actually, in Evanston. Evanston, what, Northwestern? Yeah, I went to Northwestern Medill School of Journalism. Well, my brother went to Medill School. He was uh, he graduated there with a journalism degree, a master's. Did he? Yep. Went Is he to, still in the game? Or uh, no, he failed. You see, there's this <laughs> terrible thing in our family. It's it's called uh, a defective DNA molecule, and <laughs> the problem is all of our the uh, male members of our family are lawyers. And we, I and Ray, my brother, <clears throat> tried to get out of it. We tried to do other things. He going <laughs> to journalism school and becoming a journalist, and then I doing some some other things. Well, at the end of the day, he did his time in Vietnam after being a reporter for a while in, in the Army. He was uh, a combat correspondent for the Army and he, in Vietnam. And, and when he got over there, he, he finally crashed, and he gave in. <laughs> And he also became a lawyer. But well, he, you know, probably better than journalism these days, I hate to say. But I think, you know, this genetic thing, it, it's with me, too, because my father was a writer. I was growing up. We didn't have much money. He wrote books. Um, and um, and I, I decided, you know what? I love writing. I'm going to be a writer who makes money. I'm going to journalism. And <laughs> and that that's always going to have jobs. <laughs> and and. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, life is uh, life is fascinating. It's full of zigs and zags. And I've told people on this show before that of all the five hundred plus uh, people or shows that I've done in the, with with respect, I found that there are probably six people, and you may be the seventh. I don't know. I'm going to find <laughs> out who, when they started off at age six knew what they wanted to do, and they be, went straight line till they were, you know, 20, 30, 50, 60, 80. 
and they deviated not one inch from that mm-hmm. decision that they made at age six. Um, I, on the other hand, took zigs and zags, and the other <laughs> the other four hundred and ninety four people uh, that have been on this show have done done the same thing. Zigs and zags uh, are the are the creatures the 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 way that we develop, and yeah. uh, you know it's now in your case in your case you went uh, with the idea of becoming a reporter, I, I guess. Yeah, um, right. Uh, incorporating writing that I would get paid for um, and not have to, you know, <laughs> um, have the sort of uh, money issues that, that we were facing when I was growing up. Sure. And so it seemed like a, a nice nine to five. But I actually, I, I had a little zig. It wasn't since I was six. I always liked writing. But um, I decided when I was around 10, I was going to be a veterinarian uh-huh. because I loved being around animals. And so um, years of this, I was going to be a veterinarian, even though I still liked writing. And uh, one day I decided, well, you know what, let me check on this veterinarian thing. Because when I had my blood drawn, I almost fainted when, when I looked at the blood. <laughs> and I thought, you know, if that's going to be some, an issue, I better find out now. I had written back in, that, in those days, you would write to the veterinary schools for their information packets. And I was 15, and I had written to all 22 of them at the time. I was definitely going on that track. And I found a, a veterinarian in Augusta, Maine, who um, allowed me to spend three or four days with him. And the first day, I was in the surgery with him and a couple of techs, and they were doing a couple of operations. I, I was okay until they, spayed, they, they went to spay a cat and they found out that she was full of kittens, and it was oh, horrible. They oh. took them out in the sacks and the blood, you know, the little sacks of baby kittens oh. coming out in the blood. And I started, I'd never seen, that really were white spots. They were big, white, kind of clear white spots. They were coming kind of toward me and getting bigger, bigger, and apparently one of the techs saw this, and she said, oh, you need to sit down. <laughs> and, um, and then I just didn't really want to do that anymore. I, I realized that was the exact same thing that when they blew, drew my blood, um, that I felt, and I, I know you could get over it, but I, I also thought, you know, not worth it, and I don't want to do that to cats. And, yeah. so he, and then, you know, but what's kind of cool is that it kind of all came together because I love writing, and now I can write about these these wonderful animals doing these incredible feats. So, so it, now, it all kind of worked out. A little zig, but kind of a little bit of a line. little bit of a zig there. Yeah. So <laughs> how about your brothers, sisters? How about the, um, do you have any, or are you an only child? No, I, I have a. I had a younger brother. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he um, yeah he he ended up going back to New York, and he did some acting, mm. and uh, yeah yeah he was a, he was a good guy who unfortunately uh, had some had some issues with some pretty major drugs. So oh, um, yeah. yeah, that was that's you know it's it's a crisis that's gripping the country now. He was just a little ahead of that curve. Um, And so, yeah, so he's, and I grew up with, I grew up with some dog brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. and a lot of cat, uh, cat siblings. (laughs) It was back, back then in rural Maine, every, you know, nobody knew about, I don't know, we didn't know about it anyway, spaying and neutering. That wasn't kind of what people did. (laughs) And we let the dogs out, you know, they, it's just, everyone's dogs just kind of wandered around. And so, um, we didn't know where our dog was once for a couple of days, and he came back, and it was in the winter. His name was Muttley. He was a big German shepherd and um, probably a, a Labr- Labrador retriever mix, 
beautiful, sweet dog. And he came back, and there was blood all over the snow. And this is when I wanted to be a veterinarian. And um, and so he, uh, he I, I saw that his paw was partly, you know, chopped and in a big, big, bloody way. He was losing. He was kind of bleeding out. And I knew what to do. I knew about the pressure. And the, I didn't really do a tourniquet, but I kept, my mom, we got him into the car. We drove a half hour to the vet. And the vet told me that I probably saved his life, which was so great. But it was, uh, he had gotten into a trap, some kind of a hunting trap. I don't know mm. if it was steel jaw leg. I don't know what it was, but he was, it was kind of mangled. And, you know, looking back at that now, I think, oh, my God, what were we doing? Not spinning, not neutering, letting our dogs go wild and right. get in traps. But that's kind of what people did back then and maybe still do. And I know in other countries, certainly. But, um, yeah, it's really changed since then. And, God, we loved him to death. But it was a, it was a kind of different world back then, at least in rural Maine. Well, you know, we, uh, when we grew up, were growing up, uh, we had some dogs. And one of them, uh, the, the, there was two basic kinds, the setters. We had a Gordon setter, an English setter. Uh, and they were wanderers, total, complete uh-huh. wanderers. And in fact, uh, the English setter was sort of became famous. This was way back in you know twenty thirty years ago. And but he was famous because he would wander across the expressway uh, on into town and kind of wandered into into various stores. Apparent, hopefully, looking for us. I'm not sure. Oh. Uh, but we'd stop. We had to go chasing. Where are you? Where's Parnell? And we ended up. Uh, going into the little village, Stevensville, and went into the to the drugstore. And Jaseel White said, "Oh yeah, he was in here the other day, <laughs> and and he kind of, he walked in with someone else, uh, looked around all the, stu- the 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 aisles, and then left." <laughs> oh no! We finally found him walking along a beach, uh, down you know some somewhere near our house, but walking along a beach and entertaining. The people who were relaxing on the beach, very friendly dog, but oh. just you know licking them and and uh, <laughs> please let's play, and uh, it, it was it was it was fascinating to watch. Except we were worried sick about this poor yeah. thing. Anyway, <laughs> and would so, we ever do that these days? You know, just kind of like okay. You know, set the dog loose. And in, in my book, actually, in, in Dr. Dogs, I don't know if it's okay to mention this sure. right now. It's a, kind of a, a, good, um, a good segue, but um, there was a dog uh, who was the first dog to, um, to appear in the scientific literature as having detected cancer on a person. And she just did this one day. She was the sweetest, most gentle dog uh, that you'd ever meet. She had been adopted by this lovely family outside, well, actually in London, in a kind of a tree-filled part of London, and um, she was adopted and and took right to the other family dogs, one of whom was known as a kleptomaniac. She would leave the house and wander around the village and go to the local little store. This reminds me of what you were just telling me. Mm -hmm. And, um, And she would go pilfer something, inevitably, from the shelves. And one time she came back with a a can of, I think it was a can of beans, and they looked at her and said, "What? Why? Why are you doing this?" But <laughs> but that didn't, the uh, the dog who uh, ended up detecting cancer on her person and letting her know about it was kind of like uh, she was the caretaker to to her, even though she was a kleptomaniac dog, and to the other adopted dogs. And it turns out she was also looking after her person because uh, one day this gentle dog just just 
launched for her leg, the back of this woman's leg, and started tearing at it and biting at it and growling. And, and she didn't have any idea what was going on. And she showed the spot to somebody and they said, you need to get that looked at. And it turned out it was a melanoma and they'd caught it just in time before it started spreading. And this was written up in, in the journal Lancet, you know, the prestigious oh, yeah, the British British fam- medical journal. British me- medical journal, yeah. Yes, yes, and so I got in touch with the uh, with the doctor who wrote that, who co-wrote that. It was a letter to the editor, but it was entitled uh, "Sniffer Dogs in the Melanoma Clinic," with a question mark. And I also was able to track down the woman after all these years. That came out in 1989. Actually, that letter to the editor came out on April Fool's Day, 1989. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it would not be surprising if people thought it was just a joke, but it was real. And and it was the first thing that started getting people to think about the possibility that dogs might be onto something here. But anyway, that's just kind of a, uh, because I was inspired to tell that story just because you had one of those dogs sure. wander uh, around stores as well. And and uh, you could, every, I think that every dog owner, and we're just going to talk about dogs tonight because that's what your book is about. Cats and, and other animals are, <laughs> are, you know, they're, they're, they're also. But anyway, every owner has got a story, I'm sure, of something unusual some growling or baying or something right. which was a key to protecting the family or to uh, warning them about some uh, danger or besides I just want to be fed now let me yeah. get into this right now because you're you are a dog owner you have Gus right I have Gus and in San Francisco they prefer we don't call them we don't call ourselves owners. Um, oh, we are guardians. Me. I call myself a dog person, and in the in the book, actually, I just I don't want to cross anybody, so I just say you know the person or you know I just I Partner. try to avoid that, but I still yeah yeah. So your significant other, okay? We can. I'm, 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 I'm Gus's person, but you could say owner. <laughs> I don't mind at all. I just can't say it myself. All right. Well, he owns me. Gus <laughs> Gus starts off in your book and at a at a uh, so in an interesting point because I want to tell you. My impression of your book was this is one of the best books I've read in ages. I, I really loved it. And I partially because I'm a dog person, uh, partially because uh, there's humor in it, partially because uh, you identify particular kinds of diseases or conditions, and then you, uh, you, you parse it out so that uh, each chapter deals with uh, dogs who can help in this these particular areas, but there's humor, there's fact. You've got you back up what you're saying, and I'm going to talk uh, after the break. We're going to be taking a break in a second, but after the break, I'm going to talk about uh, how you've organized it in a way which I think is extremely useful to people who they don't even have to know that there is a problem or suspect that there's a problem. Uh, in their family, but uh, this is this is what dogs do, and it's it's really fascinating. So uh, we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Maria Godavich, who is the author of a great book just out recently, Doctor Dogs, and it's about how dogs are becoming some of our best friends and best doctors or sensors. Uh, of problems and helpers. This is John Smetanka, and we will be right back on With Respect.
We're now back on With Respect with Maria Godavage, who is the author of a book, Dr. Dogs, talking about how dogs have become not just pets, not just uh, someone to go force you to go walking when you don't want to, but <laughs> rather they are people. Who, they are people. You know, I, I tell you what, let me start right off here. I think that there is a certain peopleness to every dog that I have ever uh, been acquainted with. There are very much, in fact, my brother was going to write a book, and I'll give the title away. All dogs are, all dogs are people, all people are dogs. In, <laughs> in that, you take on the character trait, or maybe you acquire a dog who is the, in the, the, has some of the character traits that you have. And uh, if not, you soon become melded together. It's, it's fascinating to watch people yeah. and their dogs. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love that idea. And um, I like to say um, when I'm talking about how um, probably, we'll, we'll probably talk about cancer research at some point, mm-hmm. but uh, when I talk about how dogs are probably not going to be in your doctor's back office or in, in the laboratory at your, at your hospital sniffing out cancers, but they will lead to a technology that will do it. I'd like to say that you know, dogs are people too. They have, they have their off days. They have their tired days. They get distracted, and so they, they're, they're not necessarily the end. But, I, I, yeah, dogs are people too. Well, let's so it's, let's uh, take one yeah. of those areas that um, when you have people, uh, human people, that uh, go through their life and they have headaches, they have sore backs, they have occasionally uh, upset stomachs and so on and so on, or marks on their body that they don't really pay attention to. They've got a, they may have a problem that they don't know about. So they ha- but there is a need. People have the need for attending to those problems. The second Part of the equation, though, is many people in our society have loved ones, people they come in contact, neighbors, kin, uh, kindred spirits, kindred persons, uh, who are, they're they're hurting. People with various kinds of illnesses, uh, disabilities, autism, diabetes, uh, cancer, all of these various uh, kinds of ex- extraordinary things can be painful to family members as well, not just the person who is suffering from the the malady. And the stories that you tell, which I'm I'm actually fascinated by the way you tell me. You're a good storyteller. Thank you. Um, and his uh, his the uh, the the various dogs that you have become alive, and but also the people, the families. The person who, for example, had had a daughter or son, I can't remember which right this minute, uh, who had autism and uh, and it just was painful to the, to the family. It absorbed all of their energy, all of their resources, all of their health. And that when a dog came along, it relieved so much of the, the downsides of living that the victim has, you know, the per, the ill person had, but also the family. So you got both sides of this equation of of the uh, people part of of uh, families that just need help. And you pointed out how dogs can help out. Once you take, for example, um, you had one dog 
uh, who was really good. I think it was um, uh, Whitley, I think his name was. Mm-hmm. And we had another one, Jedi, who, de- who were good at detecting and helping with diabetes, people who had diabetes. Tell us about that. Yeah, diabetic alert dogs are probably one of the most common uses. Let me just back up a little bit because my my book is about the more cutting edge do, um, jobs that dogs have these days um, in the the world of helping people uh, in in with medical conditions with with um, both physical and uh, mental illness or, or various conditions, and also in research. Um, and these are happy dogs that go into these research centers just as as part of what they sometimes do for, for treats and fun. So I don't want anyone to picture beagles locked away in cages. But anyway, as far as the, the diabetic alert dogs, they are, they are becoming really um, better and better known every year, and the training is getting that much better all the time. And what they are able to do now, this some dogs might occasionally spontaneously alert to something like this. Actually, some cats have been uh, noted in some some uh, case studies to have alerted to their people's low blood sugar. And, but but we won't be writing a book called Clinician Cats in the near future because mm-hmm. cats are cats. But dogs have such an incredible sense of smell that um, they are, if trained properly. Uh, able to to detect the scent of whatever is going on in the body, and hum- we don't really know what that is at this point. Scientists are still trying to figure out what it is that dogs can smell when they're smelling someone going into hypoglycemia, whose blood sugar is going down. Dogs are able to catch this. Dogs like Whitley and Jedi are able to catch the the blood sugar drop in real time. This is before the person's glucose monitor catches it. It's maybe 10 or 15 minutes before the, any kind of device is able to catch it oftentimes. And so the person can check their blood sugar and actually do something about it sooner. And the way they... Um, the way they train them is really interesting, and it's kind of the way they train a lot of the dogs. The doctor dogs, uh, my book, Doctor Dogs, is these doctor dogs are actually trained mostly using their noses. So the modern doctor dogs of today, we're taking advantage of their incredibly good olfaction. Dogs can sniff in parts per trillion. That's like about a little sugar packet compared to two Olympic swimming pools sizes they can they have uh, we have about six million olfactory receptors they have 300 million uh, the one the dogs with the, the bigger you know, longer noses usually and they 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 their sense of smell is kind of like our vision in a way just in in that it's so rich and so vivid and so um, and one one scientist I, I watched do do work with the dogs at the uh, Penn vet working dog center at the University of Pennsylvania, likes to say that dogs can smell in color. It just gives mm. sort of that vivid idea of, wow, they, there's so much there. Just because we can't smell it doesn't mean it's not, not just there, but robust and, and very different. So the, the dogs are trained on the scent of people who are in 
in hypoglycemia. So uh, they will, when I went to a place called Dogs for Diabetics, uh, north of San Francisco, they actually, when I was there watching the dogs training, they asked if they could take a sample of a, a swab of my skin. They just took some gauze and ran it over my back a couple of times to have as a control. So because I don't have diabetes and I wasn't in a diabetic low, so they would use that so the dogs could you know, say no to that one and yes to those with diabetes. So they will swab or there are saliva samples they'll get from people who are uh, in hypoglycemia, and they will pair that scent or that whatever the dogs are smelling that we humans don't know with something very good. So if the dog acknowledges it at first, they get they get a, a little reward, and and when the dog is finally at the end, the dog is alerting to the scent because they know that that scent brings really good things. That scent brings a reward mm. and praise, and it's, it's all good things. So then the dog is primed and happy and always looking for that scent. Dogs have been able, the Jedi, he's the, he's the beautiful Labr- black Labrador retriever of a little boy. Well, he's not so little anymore. I think he's 10 or 11 in uh, Southern California, and he can alert to um, his blood sugar drop if uh, the boy is outside playing on the trampoline and the dog is inside and, and the dog will go find the, the mother or the father and he'll grab um, something called a brinzel, which is kind of like a cloth, a durable cloth tube that hangs off of his, uh, his collar or the mom has always a brinzel hanging off of her and the dog can grab it. And that's the dog's signal that, hey, you know, this, we got to check his blood sugar. And he gets so excited. He loves doing this. And over the years, I think um, he started he started with the boy when um, the boy was about two years old. So uh, Luke is his name. And so he has been he has been doing this nonstop and he has not lost his, his enthusiasm. He loves it. And I think it's it's obviously it's gotten to be more for all these dogs. It gets to be more than just the treats. They can see the importance of what they're doing. They can tell the relief of the family when when things start going well after they've alerted. And they're, they're, they're so much more attuned to us than than we can even imagine. And maybe it's more than just scent they're detecting and maybe something else that we don't even know. But we're tra- they're being trained on the scent of, of and people are scientists are trying to find out what is it that they're smelling and they're trying to find out across the board what they're trying to parse this out and figure out what the dogs are smelling and so far they haven't really uh, gotten the answers yet but it's being worked on around the world well, you know you you talk about um, this this growing science scientific body uh, that uh, of evidence concerning uh, how dogs interact with people and diseases and whatnot. But this is not something that just started in the 20th century. Uh, I think you talked about this going way back, that uh, we know of it back in, what, 500 or something like that? Um, oh, oh, you mean with diabetes? Well, with, with generally, where dogs, be, be, where writers became aware that dogs were important to detect uh, uh, un, uh, bad things. Uh, yeah, we're, there's 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 some conjecture that some stories and some even some frescoes in, involved dogs helping people, and dogs have certainly been our partners in in sniffing out um, prey as as you know in, in hunting and through God knows how long. So uh, they've definitely been at our side for a long time, even even in war. So uh, there are partners, but in it, with diabetes, certainly uh, people knew as far back at least as. Um, 600s. I think it was a Chinese 
Chinese physician, uh, maybe even before that in India, they, they were noting the sweet taste and smell of urine of people who had blood sugar issues of, mm-hmm. of, of diabetics. And, um, and so the fact that doctors no longer have to diagnose people by tasting or by smelling the urine, thank goodness, but um, that's not what dogs are doing, they are, they are doing something much more important. Um, and they, they weren't using dogs back then, but it was, um, it was definitely a very interesting discovery. And an English, an English physician and anatomist actually is the one in the 1600s who popularized this in, say, the Western world. He, he was struck by the sweet taste and smell, mm. and he gave it the word you know, diabetes mellitus, which mellitus, the root word is honey. So yeah, um, right. there's, there's something dogs are picking up on in both low and blood sugar. And Jedi, as I was talking about him in Southern California, he, he can tell low or high blood sugars and he has the cutest way. And some dogs uh, who are trained in this, uh, in this diabetic low and high alerting do this really cute thing besides grabbing the brinzel and then staring at the person or sitting and staring with the brinzel in their mouth. Um, some of these dogs are trained for if the person says, Am I uh, is low or high? And so if the person has a low blood sugar, the dog will do a downward dog. You know, that kind of stretch that people do in yoga. And mm-hmm. the dogs stretch with their hind ends up and their low end, their front end down. Or if it's a high, some dogs are trained to do a little high five with their paw. And so um, the person then checks the blood sugar. It's just kind of an add-on, but it's so sweet and so beautiful. And I just want to caution people, though, as amazing as these dogs are, there are a lot of, it's a lot of work to have a dog, a diabetic alert dog, or any other medical alert dog. Um, they're incredibly valuable, life-saving, and, and life-changing partners. But it is, it is a lot of work. And the biggest caution I want to put out there is um, people need to do their homework before seeking these dogs out, because there are some great organizations and great trainers out there. There are some that are really good uh, people, and they're well-meaning, but mm, they may not produce the best dogs. And then there are some places that are just plain ripoffs and want to get a lot of money for dogs that may or may not be good detection dogs at all. You know, all. one of so, the things, again, that I liked very much in this book, there's a texture to your, to your narration about these various conditions and also the people and the dogs that are uh, involved in in this, and one of the the part of the texture is, you tell about this very thing, which is, you got to be careful. It's a lot of work to train a dog uh, to detect whether it's uh, diabetes or uh, seizures or whatnot, which we'll talk about a little later. But it is tough work training, and and also maintaining these dogs. They can make life so much easier for the people that with whom they become attached, but it's a lot of work, and you got to be careful. Just like buying a car, so to speak, you know, you 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 know, kick the tires. You've got to check where it came from. You know, if you're going to buy a used car, you want to find out from something like CarMax. You know, what kind of a history, and so on and so on. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Maria Godovich, who is the author of a great book, I mean great book, that I enjoyed thoroughly, called Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. This is John Smetanka, and with respect, and we'll be right back.
We're now back on With Respect with Maria Godavich, the author of Dr. Dogs, talking about how dogs can be trained to sniff out, to sense out, to touch, to find out when we or our kin are suffering from some medical condition and they're, they're going to, they can tell us how to treat it on, you know, real time. This is John Smetanka and with respect. So, Maria, we left off. We've been talking uh, a lot about diabetes, but there's other conditions that you were talk about, and, and each one of these these various uh, conditions that people can be heir to uh, have a different genesis and different ways uh, where it can kill or hurt uh, people, and how our dogs can be trained to help us. So, what are some of the other areas? Uh, well, seizures are a big, a big deal, and, and just finally, science is is learning and and giving a nod to the fact that dogs are able to smell the scent of seizures, and on most seizures, not all of them, but it seems that uh, there were a couple of studies actually published earlier this year, out of uh, France, that that showed that dogs do smell the scent of seizures and and this is exciting news because they are they are being trained now on the scent just as i described with diabetes these dogs are the, the when someone is having a seizure or right before or after a seizure uh, they they do the swab they do the saliva sample the dog is trained on that all good things come from that scent the dog learns to alert to that and um, it's it's really fascinating because even now a lot of people um, in uh, in the epilepsy community, a lot of even if you go online now, you'll probably go to some epilepsy websites and they'll uh, and you'll look for something about dogs and they'll say dogs cannot be trained to detect this. This is something they have to come up on on their own. And it's um, a lot of dogs in the past do this. They they tend to the way that people realize their dogs um, could could alert to, to, knew that a seizure was coming is because the dogs would get anxious before mm. a seizure, five minutes, 10 minutes, a half hour, even an hour before a seizure. And the dogs would start getting anxious, pacing, panting, different behaviors, but none of them happy. And then they, they, people would start correlating this, like, whoa, wow, every time the dog does this 15 minutes later or whatever, I have a seizure or my loved one has a seizure. So I thought, you know, that is just fascinating. But now, um, and, and what these websites would still say is they're, no, they can't be trained, but that is not the case, and we're finding that out more and more. And this is really cutting-edge stuff. There's, science is really looking into to what, what the scent of this is and what we can do, but these dogs are amazing. They, they not only alert the person, but a lot of them are trained. A lot more dogs than uh, – there are a lot of alert, more and more alert dogs, uh, diet, sorry, seizure alert dogs, but um, – even more are the dogs who are trained to help someone during a seizure and after a seizure. So a lot of dogs are trained now. A lot of these doctor dogs can call 911 uh, when someone seems to be having trouble. When they're in a seizure, they, they have a life alert button that the dog can press, and it may be a, a loved one. It may be 911, depending on what's going on, and uh, they can be noted that you know, they can know that someone is having a seizure. The dog stays by the person. Some dogs are trained to kind of go under a person for something like grand mal, also known as tonic-clonic seizures, um, are when 
just so they won't hurt themselves, and they stay by the person's side as the person is recovering, which can take a very long time, and it's just that reassuring body next to them. So those aren't necessarily cutting-edge things, but they're absolutely so valuable to the people who have these really difficult um, conditions. And other other conditions, I, I didn't actually get that much into um, dogs who are uh, who alert to things like uh, heart conditions. These dogs are mostly self-trained, and they, they sometimes have been able to tell their people about impending angina and heart attacks. And this is going to sound kind of strange, but when I was growing up, my writer dad that I was talking about had really bad heart ever since I was about three. And um, I could always smell his angina coming on before he even knew it. And I, it was this weird, I, I always called it a medical burning smell, but mm-hmm. um, there are dogs who seem to be able to tell their people that they smell it. I don't know if it was you know just my case and I didn't put it in the book because my editor thought it would sound weird. So <laughs> I kept that out. But, um, but I, I really did smell that out there until you know, he was no longer with us. But um, dogs have been able to, to help with migraines and uh, as far as physical things, things that we don't even know what the diagnosis is as long as there's a way to train the dog on the scent of what's going on with the person the dogs seem to be able to do this. I don't, rem- I don't know if you remember the story of Paul and Coira. Paul is the young man who started uh, having, he started just being paralyzed. His body, first was half yes. of his body would go limp, and then his, it was his whole body. He would just get paralyzed out of the blue. Sometimes this even entailed not being able to breathe. And he's such a calm young man that even when he wasn't breathing, he had the signal with his parents, like, two blinks if you can breathe, three blinks if you can't, or whatever their signals were. And they, they had ways to be able to have him you know, get, get the air that he needed. But it was, you know, he could have died so many times. And he also, which is such a cruel fate, he also had kind of the opti- opposite of this, which was um, dystonia. So, so his muscles all over his body would have the most horrible Charlie horses out of the blue. This is you know, not at the same time as paralysis, obviously, but they were just these two bookend horrible things and they came out completely unpredictably. But at first they went along with sort of a headache feeling. And so no one could figure out what was going on and doctors just said, eh, it's probably migraine with weird symptoms, which, you know, okay, that's, that's all the parents had to go on. So they heard about migraine alert dogs and they decided they would, with the help of a trainer, uh, with the Service Dog Academy, which um, she would call, they would do phone calls and I think they went and visited her up when she was in Seattle. They actually got a puppy, which is not usually what people do, but they got a puppy from a breeder that produces really good uh, service dogs, and they they trained this puppy since she was a, a, like eight weeks old and came to her on the scent of when he was paralyzed. So they he would do spit samples and skin swabs and save them every half hour until um, until the one closest within half hour of his paralysis or dystonia. They would throw out all the other ones and keep these and then use them as seeds to make other samples. The dog, when she got fed, they would put the scent kind of under her food. They, the bowl would have tiny little holes so she could smell that. The, the, the scent meant really good things were going to happen when she even acknowledged them. So she started becoming, she was able within a few months to to recognize the scent and then to alert to the scent. And so she was able to help him 
at least take his medication or lie down, sit down, get away from sharp objects, anything. He could take a shower and have a warning that he was going to have a paralysis. So she changed his life and, and became, of course, his best friend. She's so good at it. She had different alerts for each of these things, so he knew. It turned out um, he has something called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a collagen disorder, and it manifests in many different ways. But for him, it turns out his, his brainstem was being crushed, um, and, and he also dislocated his joints constantly whenever anything would happen. So he was just, it was, this was just one of the manifestations. And he had a couple of surgeries, and they, they really helped the, both problems because of this. And actually, Koira, the dog, didn't have um, a job for a while, and she, she was getting depressed. So they, they started having her be his mobility assistance dog because he does have mobility issues. And then, um, but he did have one type of paralysis that was not helped by by the surgery, and they didn't really think that she could detect these. They didn't think. I actually visited them, and I was there with with uh, a doctor who was visiting uh, a conference from Japan, and he's someone in the book. And so he wanted to go meet them, and so I brought him with me on the interview. And we both at the same time said, "Why don't you, why don't you think about training her for this?" And they did, and she's doing that now. So he's going to college full-time, and he's doing really, really well, and she still has a job, and she's really happy. So that's when, that's a case where they didn't, the doctor said it was migraines, and it was nothing related to it, but they, the dog didn't need to know what the diagnosis was. The dog could just smell the purity of whatever the problem at that time was, and she learned to alert to it. You know, it's, it, as I read the book, as I went through each of the different kinds of illnesses or disabilities that uh, dogs have been trained for, I was struck by, in your relation of what happened, the the fact that the uh, the alleviating alleviating of the problem, the pain, the scaredness, not only of the uh, people around this uh, the person who was um, suffered the malady. But that person himself or herself, just by stroking the hair, the fur on, on a dog, had just laying, having the dog lay down beside them, tended to minimize the, uh, many of the, the, uh, the worst symptoms of their malady. And, yeah. and, and, and I remember there's one passage, which I, I can't read the whole thing because it's uh, really actually uh, too long, but... A woman uh, wrote something, in which you quote extensively, and she talks about how she dealt with her son who had diabetes before uh, and after. And it goes, every single night before bed, I tested his blood sugar. That is about 2,340 nights that I found my sleeping child's hand under the covers and pricked his finger to get a drop of blood big enough to get a reading. 2,340 nights that I've looked uh, at a number and decided what I needed to do next. And she goes uh, throughout all these things, 2,340 nights that she was caring for her son. And now here's the thing. One of the, we tend, unfortunately, in our society where Physical health, physical beauty, physical, you know, great charm and all that is so desired that we begin to, to we see somebody who's in a wheelchair or 
who is stumbling or who is, uh, we, we hear about members of our, uh, our, our extended families who've got diabetes or, or autism or whatever, and we kind of get, you know, well, oh, this is very uncomfortable. Yeah. But the, the but the reality is, these are people who can be very productive, and and the dogs, trained as they are, or even spontaneously, can bring so much relief to the people that are in their family, and I'm Absolutely. talking about the victim of this uh, whatever the illness is, and the parents and the family, and reduce the stress that family members, parents have for, oh, what's going to happen? What, what if I'm not around when an event happens? Oh, my God. You know, it just strikes me that, that there's so much, so much benefit here that there is. Uh, we and, need and to talk about. And you just about. mentioned, yeah, you mentioned um, um, the, a young man, a, young, a, a boy, actually, with autism, and that was such a perfect case of what you're talking about right now, where the family was at a loss. I don't, I don't know if we have time to get into the story. I can keep, make we're, it pretty quick, but... Well, we're going to take a break in about two okay. minutes, so go ahead. Okay, yeah, I can. Uh, so, so this little boy was not able to to go out to to anywhere. Almost, he he did go to school. It was a lot for him, but he he couldn't go to restaurants. So the family didn't go to restaurants. They they had a a takeout folder. They had a folder with all the local menus, and they would take out and eat at home because it was too much for the. For the boy, and and they were they had heard about they, he couldn't get haircuts. Haircuts were really literally painful for him. It was sensory overload. The little hairs that were falling on his shoulders probably felt like you know just horrible you know needles on him, and the sound near his ears. And he he had to be restrained by his mother at the dentist's office. She would lie under him and hold him, and even then he'd bite or kick or scream. And and the same with the doctors. It was just hell for everybody. And they had uh, heard about autism assistance dogs and had put put their name on the list of a place in Minneapolis, actually, that trains them. And they ended up being on the list for four years. In the meantime, they thought, well, let's just get our own dog. It was a disaster because it was just a dog, and the dog ended up being scared of noises as the little boy was. And when he was about seven, though, finally he got off the list. He got his dog, Lloyd, immediately changed his life and his family's. He uh, he was he cried. The little boy had never they'd never really seen him cry tears of joy. He cried when he when he met his dog, and uh, it was immediate bonding. They they were just perfect for each other. The dog has been there for everything. He would help when it was too much in stores for the boy, and the boy could just hug onto his dog, or the dog would lie down next to him or lean into him and be very calming, and and doctor's visits, dentists, the dog, he just has to have his hand on the dog, or maybe the dog will get up on the gurney with him at the doctor, and he's calm, he's fine, and the boy is even, he's even in the school band now, he plays trombone, um, and so this, this dog radically changed their lives, all of the lives of the people in the family, and it's just an example of, of one of the many, many ways that the dogs can make a difference. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Maria Godavage, who's the author of Dr. Dogs, just out on the uh, bookshelves. Uh, I strongly recommend this book. I, I loved it, uh, and not just because I like dogs, but because of the way it's written with humor, with precision, talks about the good and the bad and things that work and things that don't work and that we're not as far along in this process as we can. But we'll talk more, more about that in a minute. 
Right now, we're going to take a break. This is John Smetanka on With Respect, and we will be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Maria Godavage, who is the author of Dr. Dogs, a book about how dogs are now becoming almost a little bit of our physicians. That is, they help us in, in medical emergencies and medical conditions. Uh, this is John Smetanka. So, Maria, when we broke, you just told this, this really great story. And by the way, your narration of the you know, being with the families and talking to the the, uh, the the people who are all I hate to use this word victim because yeah we don't we stay away from the victim word um, yeah, because they're it's conditions you know, they can, it, they, I know it is it is and they, like um, more and more commonly it's um, for some people it's survivor um, other people just you know kind of keep try to work around that but um, yeah the people who who have these these disorders and issues in their lives are um, so well changed when they have the dog. You've talked, we've talked so far about diabetes and seizures and cancer and autism, but there's another kind of difficulty, uh, which is difficulties of the mind, of the, the way our brains function or are the way we talk or the way we act. Um, And some of those uh, we call, mental illness. And dogs can be helpful in dealing with mental illness, can't they? So helpful. Just in in general, as you uh, said earlier, just in having a dog makes us feel so much better during good times and bad times. They're there for us, those without mental illness, those with mental illness. They're there. They're a shoulder to cry on. They don't tell your stories, and they they do relax you. They do make you feel better. There's a study that just came out that that further underscored all the benefits uh, for for everybody who with mental health, uh, with with and without um, mental illness. But, But for people with mental illness, these dogs can make such a difference if they're trained to help mitigate uh, whatever whatever their issue is. And just, I find this fascinating, that dogs seem to be able to, well, dogs can smell our emotions. Studies are finding this now. So those of us who have wondered, wow, how come my dog is being extra lovey and cuddly when I just came home from this bad day of work or whatever, they, they can smell our emotions. It, it turns out there's a researcher in Indiana who has a freezer and a fridge stocked with emotions. She, it's not mm. like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's the refrigerator <laughs> of uh, Dr. Oh gosh, Tatit is her name. And, uh, and she has saliva and sweat samples from people who are experiencing anger and anxiety and panic and fear. And she's tra- she trains dogs to help with diabetes and seizures as well. But um, one of the biggest things she's doing lately is to help with um, people who have PTSD and anxiety issues. And uh, she trains the dogs on general sense of these um, manifestations of some of these, of, of say, PTSD, and um, for a lot of people. And then when the dog gets paired with a person, the dog will be trained on that person's scent. Now, it's not a requirement. I think she's the only person I really know who is 
um, well, there's another there's another organization now that started training dogs to smell these emotions and pair them. But dogs are are very attuned to our body language and 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 what we're doing, and they they can tell when we're having an off day. Um, but but these dogs are are amazing. The ones who are trained for people who have post traumatic stress disorder, usually these are veterans, but not always. Um, the dogs. Uh, there's one woman in the book who had uh, sexual abuse uh, throughout her childhood, and uh, she was almost at the end of her rope, and she got a dog, and the dog utterly changed her life. And same with veterans. Now, you probably a lot of your listeners have heard about dogs for people with PTSD for veterans, and they're absolutely life-changing, life-saving, again, where these dogs are trained to be able to tell when a person is, is off. The dog can often tell the person ahead of time, hey, something's going to happen. Why don't we just go sit down? I'll, you know, I'll put my head on your lap. I'll, they'll snuggle. There are dogs who are trained on, on commands, shall we say, like snuggle is one of them. And that's one of the veterans in my book. That's his favorite word is snuggle because the dog will just come up and he'll just wrap his dog in his arms and just get through it. And he'll feel so much better. There's something about the weight and the warmth of a dog that is so calming, really for everybody. But when you're starting to feel anxiety or panic rise and the dog knows what to do because the dog has been trained, even if you have to ask the dog Nuggle, or um, what was there? There are a variety of words different different organizations use. This is just this can absolutely just it's the best thing that's happened to so many of these veterans. And you know, there are, I, I have uh, a, I have a situation. <clears throat> we had um, uh, two standard poodles and um, a, a black and a white standard poodle, and <clears throat> we had a woman come in who has um, had some of the worst things happen to her in a 24-hour period that I've ever heard anybody suffer through. And she was relating this to uh, one of my partners and crying, just sobbing. <clears throat> one of my dogs walked over to her and sat there and put her head on this woman's lap. And he, she would cry and stroke his head and cry, or her head, actually. And just this went on for the longest time, and finally she was able to settle down and relate her story in a way that we could help her. But the it was spontaneous. It was absolutely yeah. spontaneous. The That's other beautiful. situation is I had a somebody came into our office, and uh, a very imposing, tall man, and he was... <clears throat> he was uh, uh, I can't get into all without describing. Uh, he was a veteran of a foreign army, and um, I had two dogs. One of them sat down next to me and watched the man. The other dog went over and sat next to this ex-soldier and watched. At the end of the session, uh, as he was walking out, he said, By the way, I said, I hope my dogs didn't bother you. He says, No, no, they're good dogs. One watches me, one protects you. They're very good oh. dogs. <laughs> At any rate, beautiful. It, wow. it, is, it is a beautiful thing. Now, the other thing I want to talk about before we have to stop, uh, because we're going to run out of time, I've got to talk about the future. What, yeah. we're talk, what you've been talking about <clears throat> are things that is, we're cutting edge. We don't exactly know what it is that causes or allows these um, actions by dogs uh, to, to happen? 
How do they do it? And and I think in the book you talk about this. We have to learn because we don't. It's it's so difficult. There's so many yeah. people who are suffering, and there's just a limited number of people who can train these dogs. We need to figure a way to make to maximize their skills or to replicate them. Right. Okay. So what's going on now is um, there's a lot of work being done in laboratories around the world. And again, to reiterate, these are not beagles locked in cages. These are usually happy dogs who just come in for a day of fun, um, a couple or three days a week or, or more, depending on where. And they detect, they're detecting all kinds of cancers, for instance. They, they're so good at detecting, even the hard to detect cancers like ovarian cancer, which unfortunately runs in my family, early stages, stage one, even. They can detect ovarian cancer in a drop of plasma from someone with ovarian cancer. And that drop can be mixed with a drop of saline, and one drop of that comes out, and, and that the dog can detect that. And, oh. and so it's just fascinating. And what they're doing with these dogs, uh, there are numerous cancers they're able to detect in early stages. But as I said earlier, dogs Dogs are only human, and they're, they have their days. They're not perfect. They're good. They're great at what they do, but they're not perfect. What is going on with, with these, and, and also with Parkinson's disease, is that the, the scientists are, are asking the dogs, what is it that you're smelling? And the dogs are telling them what they're smelling. They're doing this in a very different language than we're used to, but the dogs are able to, uh, well, scientists are using uh, chemical analysis techniques like GCMS, gas chromatography, magnetic spectrometry, and they are able, they're feeding this, these, these compounds, or these volatile organic compounds, these patterns of them back to the dog saying, hey dog, is this the scent you're alerting to? Is this what the cancer fingerprint is for that cancer? And the dog will say yes or no by alerting or not. And so there's this feedback loop going on around the world where scientists are trying to find out what the scent is. The goal here is not to have dogs in the laboratory, but to have dogs lead beautifully as our best friends to early detection through non-invasive, inexpensive, highly accurate devices that maybe we can blow into when we go to the doctor's office and they can say early stage or not, or you're clear for another year. Um, and, and some a guy at MIT I have in the book, he thinks that this technology will one day be available on our smartphones so um, that they, they can scent and the dogs will lead to us knowing what these volatile organic compounds are, what it is. Is there a scent to cancer in general? Does each one have its own fingerprint? And the same with Parkinson's. There are dogs up in an island off of Washington State who are marching around getting turkey in exchange for detecting Parkinson's on T-shirts, and they, they're really good at it. And the hope is to, uh, to get earlier and earlier um, diagnoses so they can be treated earlier. And all this is going on with, with really good scientists working alongside these amazing dogs who are dedicated to this. There's a lot of really good stuff. I think that we will be able to um, say the dogs save all of our lives in the future. And uh, just because they're dogs and they love doing what they do and they love making us happy and they yep. do it all for a treat and praise and love. All right. Maria Godavich. Wonderful, wonderful book and most enjoyable talking to you. You've done a good job. You've written other books, uh, Secret Service Dogs and Top Dog and uh, the, the other is... Soldier Dogs. Soldier Dogs. Soldier Dogs, which is really applicable now that that dog is yeah. um, uh, the Delta, Delta Force dog has yeah. been a hero. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for a wonderful uh, chat tonight. And I hope that... Uh, other people will get a chance to read your book and find out how 
whether I'm right or wrong, that this is one of the best <laughs> books I've read. So, Thank you so this, much. This is John Smetanka. We're on With Respect. We're on every Saturday, Sunday, and Thursday. And until next time, remember our mantra. If you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you. <laughs>